0: Welcome to this Sunday's message from the King's Church, Mid-Sussex. Now it's wonderful to be here and also uh, over this weekend I actually had forgotten that it was uh, the Armistice uh, Weekend and Remembrance uh, Sunday, but I do have a photograph, I don't know if it's going to go up, it doesn't look like it's going to go up. Is there not a pho- photograph there? Yes. Oh, there it is. So uh, the, the lovely young couple getting married in the middle there, that's my great-aunt Ivy, this is on my mother's side, uh, my great-aunt Ivy and her husband, Harry. And uh, first love, young love, he's married in uniform. Uh, he went off as many a young Englishman did to fight in the First World War. He never came back, and she never remarried. She stayed single. You know, didn't get pregnant, so she just stayed single. And I think... um, She didn't really have an easy life either. Um, She was living in London during the Second World War and uh, that was the war in which our family uh, only lost one one house and it was her house, direct hit during the Blitz. And she came back up out of the, uh, I don't know if she was staying in the underground or where the bomb shelter was and the house was totally gone, completely. Obliterated. So I know these things are kind of distant, somewhat, um, but probably most of us in the room have family. Whether you know, you may not even know the stories. I mean, I remember my grandfather didn't say a word about what he experienced, and I think uh, if you can remember your grandfather and those who were in the First World War, they just didn't didn't talk about it. It's like the horrors of it, and. Some of our greatest poets were lost as well in that, in that horrible, horrible conflict. Anyway, um, so we must preach the gospel. I think that's, as I look at the news and I look at these kind of bits and bobs and reels on Instagram and Twitter and all of this stuff, we have to preach Jesus Christ, uh, you know. You know, there's such drift, uh, and our objective isn't to try and prove other religions are wrong or come against other peoples. Our job is to preach Jesus Christ, to try and win people to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our task as a local church, as a family of churches, as an international family of churches. We've got to get this thing right we are too silent we're quiet we've we've kind of we just allow things to drift we've got to preach christ evangelistically tell people who jesus is what he did for us for them for you and how through repentance and faith in him you can get right with god it's absolutely critical and it's not just a kind of a cultural historic thing, of course it's rooted and in the, the first world war was <clears throat> Philip Jenkins the uh, the American sociologist academic has written a, a war a book about the First world war, highlighting its religious connotations for those who were sent and for those who were sending their sons that this was somehow for God uh, that was a terrible that was a that was a terrible war. And the Second World War, again, you can see how Christian faith and the idea of fighting for God and country has had a negative impact on people's receptivity to the gospel. But our job is to preach Christ. So I'm going to look at a few things this morning. I've been enjoying this Go Global. It's quite difficult to say that, Go Global. It's very globular. You could you could get into all sorts of gobbledygookly mistakes by saying, go global. Have you been practising? Does anyone, does anyone say it? I mean, maybe it's just like, only when you're introducing a sermon. So anyway, I, I've been enjoying your Globular series uh, very much. I've listened to all of them. I didn't listen to last Sunday, um, but I did enjoy, uh, I, I loved the first, me- I loved all of them, but I loved the first message that um, William Kaye, is it? Uh, preached this kind of, yeah. he's obviously here somewhere, because I don't think you're applauding me for liking William K's sermon somewhere there. I, I, uh, I just thought it was this, this contrast between a church that was kind of forced into uh, expansion and a church which was empowered, uh, both were empowered, of course, into expansion as well, um, and Joe and I, uh, we, uh, we, we, we did go, actually. We're, we're a couple who actually have gone. Um, Philip Larkin, the poet, said, my get up and go got up and went. Uh, but not in that sense. We, uh, we, we did go. We kind of bought into this in, you know, in reality in our own lives. Um, I came to Christ from a completely atheistic background. I was classic English family, British family, my father's Greek, my mum English. Uh, we never went to church, um, not as a protest or anything like that. Um, there's nothing really to protest about. Um, just didn't need to go to church, why would you? What, what was the need to? Um, and my father, who's since become a, a genuine believer, um, I didn't believe in Christ, but of course being Greek and raised in orthodoxy uh, himself, made sure I was baptised, and because the Greeks know uh, what the word means, they, uh, I was fully immersed. Um, but as a baby, bizarrely, ironically, weirdly, strangely, <laughs> irrelevantly. And um, that was pretty much my last interaction with Christianity right up until close to my Uh, My conversion, my father uh, started a uh, freight forwarding and shipping company uh, here on the south coast of of England, and so we moved from London and Hertfordshire, and then we moved down to Hove, the centre of all spiritual reality and truth, as every guru in East Sussex knows. And so Sussex is where I mainly grew up, and I I was a rebellious student, but I was uh, an avid uh, reader, and being an avid reader did not pacify me or make me more compliant. It rather fueled my resistance to uh, authoritarian hierarchies and certainly would have done so towards organised religion had I actually encountered it at any point. I was president of the Students' Union in my small college in, in Lewis and anew the Sussex scene. That's right, from Hassocks and Hurspurp Point to to Ringmer and Peacocke, from from Worthing to Wadhurst. Wadhurst. We 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 partied and we played the scene. And I had a love for for literature, um, literature in English, particularly from the the older uh, I'd say older poets from you know Dunne and uh, and Keats and and through to the moderns and. That kind of reading, reading some of the modern, not the postmodern, but the modern poets, Eliot's The Wasteland, where there's kind of authentic descriptions of loss and fragmentation. Uh, I think it was Sartre, who's a French novelist, who, who wrote that we are now in a situation where there is no God. I mean, we know there's no God, but suddenly we find ourselves orphaned bereft uh, on a level where there's just it's just us it's only us Uh, Albert Camus also talked about the the nausea that comes from this kind of lostness and lack of meaning Um, and so to India I came and um, I spent six months in India not really searching for truth just really just having a laugh Um, but which you can do in India without having to be on a search for meaning and truth. But I did stay for a month at the foothills of the Himalayas. This very much sounds like a searching for meaning and truth story. Um, and I was reading there as well, um, you know, books like um, Siddhartha by Herman Hesse and just, you know, is there, is there such a thing as truth? There's a scene in at the end of Siddhartha where he's sitting by a river and he's He's searching for the answer and it's kind of like the, the river it flows. The journey is the destination. It's that kind of quasi-Western Buddhist kind of look at things. And I just I thought I read it in the book and I've since you know flicked through the whole thing and I cannot find this phrase, but I must have just felt it in myself. Never lose your thirst for truth. So thirst is this theme that comes up. Never lose your thirst for truth. Because if you lose your thirst for truth, you'll just conform. And conforming is definitely something that I didn't want to do. I wasn't gonna conform. And so from the Himalayas to, as I say, Hove, uh, back again, I was staying with my parents by that time and um, there's a knock on the door and it's a friend, uh, not a very close friend, but someone that I considered sane. He was a musician, I was a musician, so kind of, you know, he was okay. And he, he says, he makes this claim, oh, we get into a conversation, like the first conversation we have, I have found the truth. And so I obviously was immediately concerned for his sanity, presuming that he must have had some kind of breakdown, and he'd been taken in by some group, and they have done something to him, and he talked about being born again. And it did seem to me that he was describing an authentic experience. Something had actually happened to him, although he was still sleeping with his girlfriend and taking drugs and all the rest of it, but I didn't really see that bit. I just saw this claim to truth, and I thought, that cannot be right. It goes against everything I've known and learned up to. that. I'm in my 20s by now. And um, so I said, well, just give me the, whatever they gave you to read. So he had the good sense to give me the Gospel of John, And I began to read the Gospel of John. And the good thing about uh, reading rather than dialogue, I know the trend is dialogue, belonging before believing and all of that, and great. But the great thing about just reading is it just keeps saying the same thing to you even though you argue with it. So I'm arguing with it and it just keeps saying the same thing again. So I did a close reading of uh, the Gospel of John. And of course, just to cut a long story short, Against the run of play, I just felt this pull. Like, this cannot be happening. There's a, a, a you know, so my friend, the circumstances, my, the point in my life all began to recede, and who Jesus is began to kind of emerge. Uh, the, you know, the background began to blur, and a, a, a crystal clear picture of Christ who's actually moving towards me and seems to be calling me. I mean, the whole thing felt so corny and cringy. At one point I thought, I think I am seeing the light. This is, this is so corny. How can I accept this? But there was this pull. Follow me. Follow me. And then, of course, I, I get to the bit in the Gospel of John I'm nowhere near the sermon, by the way. I get—we're I get, This is going to be a long meeting. It's fine. I get to the bit in the Gospel of John. Where, and, I'm, and remember, I'm, I'm trying to contradict every little bit. I'm looking for the contradictions. I'm looking for the mistakes that I'm absolutely certain will be there. I've always believed they're there. I'm looking for the contradiction. I'm looking for the error. And suddenly, here's this phrase, if any man is thirsty let him come to me and drink." Wow! So I make this connection between this commitment to never lose my thirst, and this Jesus, who's now kind of strangely getting through and emerging towards me, and he's saying, not this principle, that seven step, that thing over there, this, come to me and drink. And out of, whoever comes to me and drink, out of his belly will flow rivers of living water. And I I didn't fall on my face and give my life to Christ then. I kept arguing through. I started comparing translations to try and find the contradictions that way. And then I knew that was cheating, so I stopped doing that. Um, But I did go back to my friend and I said, look, I think I want to follow. I didn't have any Christian jargon or language for anything. So what I said to him was, I think I want to be a disciple. <laughs> I didn't have any. I didn't have any of the terminology, the glossary of the in the in-house glossary. I didn't have any of that. I, I want to be a disciple, and um, it was kind of real because I remember saying, "Is it you, Lord? I can't, I can't. How can it be? Is it you?" And in that kind of prayer, "Is it you?" I I just knew. Mm this is really bad news (laughs) and at the same time this is really good news can it be that this book, the Bible who would have thought this dusty essentially discarded as I thought then western document attached to a kind of ornamental Echo of something that people once believed, but now we've just got this kind of ornamental memory which we occasionally bring out at state occasions, or it's a little bit like a really a slice of fancy wedding cake that you can't quite throw away. You know, you kept it, you'd never eat it, but you can't throw it away. That's kind of how I saw. The Church of England, <laughs> you know, that's that's how I kind of saw Christianity in Europe and in England, and yet suddenly it's like it could it cannot be there, it cannot be truth here. It's wonderful. So I said to him, look, I, I want to say yes to Christ. He obviously thought I was messing him around because we hadn't really spoken for two weeks. I'd just been going at John, I think some of the other Gospels I can't remember, and so he didn't go to church. Like I say, he's still. You know, he's claiming that he's been born again. I'm not sure that he was. Um, And so he thinks I'm winding him up, and he agrees to take me to this mission place in Kemptown in Brighton. It's it's Kemptown still exists, right? Is it still called Kemptown? as a suburb. So we go there. It was called The City. And I go in, and I'm sitting down, and there's these really badly made American... Kind of uh, films of the life of Moses and things like that playing on the screen, and it's 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 low grade, low budget stuff. And I'm kind of watching this. The guy, I mean, I've, we've tried to, you know, make an appointment with the minister or whatever. He's not come down. Over the doorway, it said, "Go into all the world." And I thought, yeah, of course, you know, uh, you can't stay in church all day long. You know, got to, you know, that's what I thought that meant. You know, you poor little broken. That's the, still the view of the Christian that I had was that the Christian was a broken, vulnerable, you know, sheep little thing. And, and you, come on, go into the world. You can't stay in the meeting all day long. You've got you've to go out. You need to live in the real world. Anyway, finally the, mission come, uh, the minister comes down to, to see me and we go into a, a private room and I'm trying to, I think, impress him with how much of the Gospel of John I can remember because I've kind of really been looking at it closely, so I can remember quite a lot of it. And he cuts into it and he just says, let's pray. And so I think I got on my knees, I can't remember, um, and I I asked for God to forgive my sins, and he laid his hands on me, and there was an, I didn't expect anything, because why would I expect anything? I'm a sinner, I'm coming to God for forgiveness of my sins. I don't deserve anything. Now, I didn't feel convicted particularly of my sin. I mean, I just knew I was a sinner. I mean, that was one thing I was actually quite good at. And so I, that's, why, that's why I'm surrendering in that moment. He lays his hand on me, and there's this explosion of light within me. I am absolutely filled with light, like a nuclear explosion. It just kind of goes off inside of me and afterwards I, I he's prophesied something over me. I st- I stand up, I'm shaking, and I, I go down the the stairway, I'm holding to the like the railing or the ban it was a railing rather than a banister. And I'm going down and then I suddenly see these words again, your your words, your series words, go into all the world. And this time they the letters kind of expanded <laughs> out towards my, my chest, you know, in three dimensions. They just went bang, go into all the world. And I knew that it meant and preach the gospel, and preach the gospel. And then for, for me at, at that point, that just meant go and tell everyone who doesn't yet know him about Jesus. Just go and do that. That's probably a good place to start, by the way, before you go global. uh, Just go to one person and start talking about Christ. And then go to another one. And then try and find ways of just sowing lots of gospel seed. And forget how you feel about it and forget whether you think you're gifted at it or not. That's utterly irrelevant. You and I are witnesses and we're supposed to talk to people about Jesus. So I'll come on to my baptism in the spirit in a minute but after whether it is after the massive conversion or the massive baptism in the spirit moment I became Mr Gospel. I mean I did. I just went everywhere telling everyone about Jesus. People started coming to church. It was embarrassing because it actually works. You know, you know when Jesus said you reap what you sow. It's really true. If you sow one seed and then hope for something and just pray into that one seed, you know, for years and years and years, maybe after a few years, my dad gave his life to Christ after 19 years of continual sowing into his life. So maybe that one person will come to Christ. But if you sow lots of seed to lots of people in lots of ways, lots of times, you'll reap more. I mean, it isn't. You know, rocket science, so, or as someone said once, it isn't rocket surgery, so <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know, sorry about that, um, so I used to go and buy these victory tracts, does anyone remember victory tracts, Kieran, oh, there's a few others too, not very well written, they were punchy though, not very great designs, old-fashioned and there's really usually no room to write the address of the church that you want people to come to I used to give them out everywhere I went because I'd found the truth and it didn't matter like I say how I felt or how the other person might feel I knew the truth and I knew I immediately realized that the vast majority of people around me were like I was not churchgoers not familiar with Christian language or, 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 or ways of uh, describing things, but they needed Jesus. And honestly, that's your mission field. That's your mission field. Right here in Burgess Hill and Haywards Heath and Hassocks and Hirspear Point and Wadhurst and Worthing or wherever you, you know, Ditchling. You know. This is your, this is it. So it's great to talk about what God's doing through church movements globally and around the world. And it's lovely. Pray for us in South Africa. But you, you're, what is your responsibility? What does God want you to do? I'd put it to you. He wants you to share your faith with someone. And not just say, oh, that's for Ephesians. For going global, that's Ephesians 4 ministries and being plugged into apostolic and churches. It, it, that is included in that. But for you, day by day, that's backdrop. That's part of what you're in. But for you, day by day, please don't say to yourself, oh, no, I'm doing that because I'm in a church that has all this structure globally around it. No, no, no. You share the gospel. So I maybe want to just add in a little puzzle piece into the series. I didn't put my timer on. This is deadly stuff. But what time does the service end? Three o'clock, excellent. Any, any advance on three? Do I hear any advance on three? I hear 3.30, 3.30. Okay, so thanks, thanks, Kieran. Uh, I'm not taking any other answers just now. Uh, I refer you to Kieran's answer. Um, I just want to add a puzzle piece in because it's not only is it part of my own story, because after Jesus said, go... And he said, go lots of times. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. After he said those things, he also said, stay. He also said, stay. So, why? Well, he's died on the cross for our sins. On the third day he's raised, he appears for a period of 40 days, culminating finally in his ascension into the heavenlies. But before he leaves, he says this, stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That's the bit I want to put into the series. So it's not a staying in terms of don't go, it's we need power. That's in Luke 24. And then in Acts 1, you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And again, Acts 1, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses, the very thing we're talking about now, both in Jerusalem, all Judea and Samaria and as far as the remotest parts of the earth. Now that happened, that going bit happened, but there's something that happened first and that was the mighty outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It's not that they had nothing to say after the cross, It's not that they had nothing to say after the resurrection. It's not that they had nothing to say after the personal appearances of Christ to them or after having seen him ascend up into heaven. But Jesus said, wait for this. This power of the Holy Spirit is what enables the church to go global. Here is the promised power, the dynamic power, energy of God that enables them and us to take the gospel, to endure suffering, to become adventurers in the Spirit, to reach far-off groups, to cross cultural and racial boundaries set by the prejudices of men. It's the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit. So they told me, and sorry to keep speaking personally here, but I think it it may help someone. They told me, you were baptized in the spirit of conversion. We believe that can happen, Acts chapter 10, if you know the the, the book of Acts. And so I said, oh, okay, well, that's fine. I'm a learner, I don't know, I'm not declaring anything. I joined a charismatic church, it was called Clarendon Church in Hove, as I say, the center of all spiritual truth and reality. And, And they told me, you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit, you just don't speak in tongues. I said, okay, fine. So I wasn't seeking the baptism of the Spirit because the the experts, they told me, you've been baptised in the Spirit. I said, okay, great. I've already got it. Brilliant. Got it at conversion. I didn't know what it was. And I knew I had a call to preach the gospel everywhere I went. And I was beginning to do it. And then I went to a Bible week, first one I ever went to. So I'm converted around June, I think. I was having a debate about the reality of time, at the, you know, at the time. So I do not know the exact dates. Uh, so June or July. And then, and then the Bible week was in August. With that I know for a fact because it's on record. Um, and anyway, after one of the evening sermons, there was a song and we sang the song and I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. But I find myself on the floor sobbing uncontrollably, um, and this, by the way, was in the days when we didn't, as a, as a rule, see people falling over or, you know, being, you know, laying down on the floor or anything like that. Um, I'm on the floor, I'm sobbing uncontrollably, and before me is this vast expanse of, so I can't really explain, of God himself. I mean, I just, I didn't see anything, but I was in the presence of God. And it was utterly life-changing. I wouldn't put it as a conversion, and I had a dramatic conversion, is like at 100% and this was like a 30% thing. It was more like that was a 100% thing, being born again, and being baptised in the Holy Spirit. I hate to say it, it's like a 100% thing. It was a massive thing for me. It was a purifying thing without being told that so I just like forget you know whatever I was in before forget like even being proud of being like a true blue non-Christian all that nonsense forget all of that I'm in the presence of God and He is vast I mean that was the preeminent is it an attribute of God the preeminent experience that I had the preeminent quality of the Godhead that I experienced in that moment was his immensity and of course his holiness, his purity his kindness his goodness his acceptance because the blood has enabled me to get in here and yet but what it did for me is that you are here and God is almighty God who could do anything. And it was a massive experience. And I began speaking in tongues the next day. And so I told them, no, I've been baptised in the Spirit now. (laughs) And I've been advised, I mean, by one particular leader, who's not in New Frontiers, uh, not to tell stories like that. You know, if you're going to help people receive the Holy Spirit, you know, you shouldn't really tell the, the, the dramatic, dynamic, big experience that you've had. Um, don't, don't use Charles Finney's baptism in the Spirit experience as an illustration because Charles Finney was mightily baptised in the Holy Spirit. Don't go to Azusa Street where the Holy Spirit was poured out uh, on others at first, and then William Seymour himself, a black leader who actually ended up leading a multiracial team in Los Angeles for a, for a season where the Holy Spirit was poured out with such effect that, I mean, they, had, they added gifts of the Spirit to 1 Corinthians. One of them was the gift of playing the piano. <laughs> you know, don't talk about these mighty outpourings where people are healed and set free and the, the bigness of it because most of our people are just getting kind of like sh- small experiences and it kind of puts them off. It can put them... There's a pastoral concern that if you talk about the big stuff that God can do, that people, rather than saying, I want that, they would say, I haven't got that. That's not true for me. I don't think we got the freedom to do that with scriptural stuff. I think when you read Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 and Acts chapter 10, or you read about Philip, is it Acts chapter 8? You know, you you read about God's ways. We need to actually say, God, give me more. And it's not necessarily about shouting or loudness or falling over. Of course it's not. But it, it's likely. You know, God is powerful. And where are we going to get energy from? Where does energy come from? Where does the energy of the sun come from? It all comes from him. Where are we going to get this dynamic life of God in the soul? From him. And so my exhortation to you, even in this series, when do we actually finish? (laughs) Next week. Not the series. (laughs) Okay, in 20 minutes. Oh, half an hour. Um, we need God. We need God. We really, do. we really do. And I want to encourage you not to lower the word of God. I haven't even got to a text. I'm so sorry. I, don't, I, I want to encourage you not to lower your faith, not to lower the word of God to your experience, but rather to raise your expectation and raise your faith up to the measure of God's Word. Do it that way round. Raise your faith and your expectation up to the Word of God. And you absolutely cannot, must not be intimidated by those who try and de the Scriptures or de church history. What I mean by that is take the super... Even C.S. Lewis said... You know, you cannot remove the supernatural from Christianity. It's the one religion that you can't do that. You have to start with the supernatural. You have to argue for it from the beginning. We need to be filled again and again and again. And the idea that we can't talk about this revival, 1904, or that revival in the Hebrides in 1940, or some of the great revivals that are happening around the world today, because somehow it kind of like it's going to make us feel like we're missing out we're not really included no let's rather flip that on its head and say come Lord we need your power Lord okay let me just jump ahead to just two scriptures Uh, one scripture (laughs) okay two scriptures Uh, Romans 5 5 from Romans 1 to the end of Romans 7, there are only four references to the Holy Spirit. Okay, And in, in, that, in, that, uh, in those chapters, Paul is arguing why you need the gospel, whether you're an outrageous sinner or whether you know, you've got the Bible and you're a religious sinner, whether you know or don't know the Word of God, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And they're justified through faith in Jesus Christ. It's through believing that what he did on the cross for you, dying there for your sins, he rose again from the dead and you're made right with God through believing that. And then he answers a couple of objections. Objections. Well, he proves that that's scripturally what happened with Abraham, David, and then he answers a couple of objections. Well, doesn't that mean people could just sin all the time then if it's just justification by faith? If you're just made with, right with God just by believing, you just keep sinning and keep believing and you'll be right with God. And he says, no, 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 because when you believe something happens to you, you get changed. The old you has died and is a new you. There's a category change in your life. You, you, there's, a, there's a transference from one realm to another realm. And then he argues the uh, another objection about well, what about the law? Shouldn't that be brought in to restrain people and regulate behaviour? And he says, no, no, it just produces condemnation. And then in chapter 8, he gets to the beginning of what's the Christian life like then? And so from 1 to 7, there are four references of the Spirit. He gets to chapter 8. Guess how many references there are on? You're not allowed to answer a few at the conference. Guess how many references to the Holy Spirit, not just to our Spirit, but to the Holy Spirit in in Romans chapter 8. You've never thought about it as a charismatic chapter before. Guess. 24. 54. I'm obviously going deaf. It's 21. 21 references to the Spirit of God. So the normal, normal, yes, the normal Christian life is normally and regularly Us encountering the Spirit of God. Two scriptures, one from Romans 5, one of the four, and and one from Romans 8. The love of God, Paul says, has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. Amazing, amazing. Do you know that? Have you experienced that? Because the love of God being poured out into your heart will do what... Hours of going over your experience and wanting to correct your behaviour and putting things in place, which you should do, but it, it God can can heal you on the inside in a moment through pouring his love into your heart and making you realise that you are a beloved child of God. Unendingly, he, he loves you and the Spirit of God mediates that to you so that you know it on the inside. He authentically reveals to you and imparts to you an experience of God's love so that even as you're reading the Scripture, it's the the love of God is still coming towards me. Is this a reward for good behaviour? No, we've already dealt with that in chapters 1 to 7. This is the love of God being poured out. And then the other scriptures, verse 15 to 16 of chapter 8, you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. Now, you still may have an idea of adoption as it being somehow separate to being a real child. Can I just say to you, that's so wrong. And I say it on the basis of experience. We've been fostering these little ones. They get left in the hospital. We pick them up from the hospital. The earliest one was 25 hours old. We keep them for, I mean, we just gave one away now, who's eight months old, nearly. Uh, And honestly, the bond that happens is as real. We've had four of our own kids, so I'm not talking theoretically. The bond is as real. It's so powerful. It's so powerful. And the bond that happens when you adopt is, has to be even more so. So when God talks about you as an adopted child of His, that means you're, you are a real child of His. There's no distinction or difference. You're a real child of God. And the Spirit cries out, witnesses with our spirit, testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. It's amazing. Martin Lloyd-Jones argues that that's a higher form of assurance. Uh, That's not downgrading... um, The if you like, a kind of... Well, we mustn't just settle for a mathematical kind of theological experience where we say, I have believed in Jesus, and the Bible says, if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven. That is good. That's not bad. But Lloyd-Jones is arguing there's a higher thing. You know, I've put my trust in Christ. I believe in him. Therefore, I am a child of God because it says, you know, whoever believes in him... You know, he won't cast away. Where is it in John 1? Um, they're, they're born not of the will of man or the will of flesh, but born of God. So, you know, I can, I'm a child of God. I can put that together plus that equals that. What this text is saying is that the Holy Spirit directly confirms that. So it's not working against, not the Word working against the Spirit, it's the Word of God and the Spirit of God exploding in you to make you realise that you are loved by God. This flooding, this pouring forth, it's not conversion. It's post-conversion by definition. It's once you are a child of God that the Spirit witnesses and testifies to your spirit, not before, But once you are, now, of course, Acts 10. And perhaps to a degree, my experience of that explosion of light and knowing that I was forgiven. But this is an experience that you can have now and again and again and again and again. The love of God poured out into your hearts. Stay in the city until you are (coughs) clothed with power from on high. Don't take it by faith. Do you know what I mean? The Pentecostals were so wonderful, and then it's kind of morphed into, not all, all Pentecostalism, but some of it has morphed into kind of a formulaic type of thing, that you take it by faith. A friend of mine was in a church in America, and her name was Beryl, she's from England, because Beryl. Uh, slightly older lady, and not a hugely popular name nowadays. I understand. We what should we call this beautiful daughter of ours? So she's a lovely. <laughs> what have I done? Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Beryl, if there's someone called Beryl here, look, if you don't know Jesus, now's your day. That was the sign. That was the sign. If you're looking online and your name's Beryl, give your life to Jesus. Um, Anyway, she goes into this church and her friend has broken her leg. She's sitting in the wheelchair and it's up in a cast and and Beryl goes over to her like really concerned and and, uh, she says, oh, you know, are you okay? And her friend says, I'm not receiving it, Beryl! I'm not receiving it! (laughs) Well, what is that? That's unreality. She said, but you got it. No, I'm not receiving it. But what are you going to do about it? (laughs) You're there, you've got a broken leg. I'm not receiving it. There's a kind of unreality. But when someone really gets healed, I remember I was praying for someone and there was a pain in their hand or something. And I prayed for them. I said, how is it now? And he said, I'm healed. And I said, oh, brilliant. Well, you know, pick up this, pick this cup up. And he tried it. <laughs> and I said, can we not do that, please? <laughs> let's, let's do it the other way. Let's pray and ask God to actually heal you so we prayed again I rebuked the pain or whatever and he said oh wow and then he's lifting up the mic stand and he's going to all his friends telling them look look let's actually trust God let's stand and we're going to pray we've got a few minutes left you have a ministry team hey yeah Yeah. let's just be before the Lord I literally didn't speak hardly what I meant to speak so I'm hoping that that was a leading rather than just me rambling but let's let's ask the Holy Spirit to come. Holy Spirit we we welcome you here and I I thank you for those moments where I've known the infilling of your power and I pray now Lord would you fill those who are seeking you seek and you'll find knock the door will be opened Lord as we move into this further into this series Lord we don't want to do it without your power we need another Pentecost we we need to become in a right sense Pentecostal we want your power power Lord and we ask you Holy Spirit to come fill us afresh fill us afresh Lord just receive thanks for listening to this message from the King's Church Mid-Sussex to connect with us online visit tkc.org.uk we hope you'll join us again soon